seconds. Sorry, I was just clicking on the link. Say hello. Come say hello. This is Austin from Millionaire Tubes. Hi. Hola. He's been talking good about you. Don't worry. I'm <laughs> lying. 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 Just letting your lying to me. <laughs> and then other than that, like I said, I appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it. That a piece of advice made this whole call worthwhile for me. Just thank you, man. Sure, yeah, I love all these points and uh, the tools that you suggested. That's what I'm saying is like, I don't necessarily know all the answers, but I think I can point you in all the right directions or at least we can kind of brainstorm, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, this, this is really useful because it's new for me, but you know, now that you saved this, I was like, oh, you know, now I should be focusing on this as well. So this is great. Thank you so much. Are you tired of building your business alone? If so, I'm putting together mastermind groups with our listeners so we can help each other grow our businesses. How do you join? Well, first off, you have to stop being a cheap ass. And you do that by joining our Patreon membership, which you can do by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. So what are you going to learn in these mastermind groups? Well, you're going to come to the table with issues you're having in your business, and you're going to get real feedback from other business owners about what you can do to fix those problems. And I've only got a few more spots open for these mastermind groups. So if you're tired of growing your business alone and you want feedback on how to improve your business, well, this is the group for you. So to become part of this group, first you have to be a Patreon member. And you do that by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And again, spots are going to be limited, so don't miss out on this opportunity. That door got slammed shut. I was devastated. I thought, 24 years old, to lose my 10 girlfriends who I thought were going to be my friends for life was devastating. Now looking back, it was the best thing that could have ever happened. Had I kept my foot in two ponds, my salon would have failed. I would have never jumped fully in. And at that time, I wasn't brave enough to do it. I ran to the station, still waitress. I would work all day and then rush and serve crab legs at night. Working seven days a week for probably the first seven to 10 years of my hairdressing life. Things you have to look out for in your lease is believe in yourself, surround yourself with people that also believe in you and try to have fun doing it. I mean, that's something I think probably the hardest thing. I try to remind myself, are we still having fun? Hey, I'm Janine Jarman. I am 37 years old, located in Los Angeles and sometimes New York. I own Heroin Salon in Los Angeles and New York and Parlor H, an online salon. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? I think we all know we have to get our hair cut every once in a while, but do you want to describe what your salon's about, why it's a little different from the other ones? Heroin Salon was started 13 years ago with the idea that we could have a high-end results salon with a more like down-to-earth customer service and feeling and attitude. We do all types, textures, something kind of unique for a high-end salon. 40% of our business is men. We have a really diverse range of hair types, textures, and patrons. With a normal salon, would that ratio normally be? Because you're saying it's 40% guys to 60% women? Yeah. Typically, you talk to men, most men just go to a barber shop or they very much have this salon's for a, a fancier salon tends to be for a woman. And I found early on in my career that men wanted to go to a more high-end salon and talk with a stylist that really could come up with a look and a plan for their hair and recommend products that wasn't really the barber experience, but they could get a barber effect. If that makes sense, it's more of a feeling we were trying to convey. What's kind of interesting to me is that you say you have one in New York and one in Los Angeles. So that's obviously opposite sides of the world. Yes. It seems kind of weird to have it in two different spots like that. It is pretty weird. It was an opportunity that eight years opened me into me opening the Los Angeles location. I just had a really great opportunity to open our second location in New York with the same landlord. And I jumped on it and it was by no means my ambition or my idea. So tell us about the size of your company, because I was pretty surprised when I was doing some research, how many people you employ and then your revenues. Altogether, we have about 47 people, 40 of that being hairdressers, seven being management and reception staff, pretty evenly divided between New York and LA. And our revenue, we did about two and a half million dollars last year combined. 
And then another thing that stood out is that the people that end up staying with you, I think there's a lot of turnover right in the hair world as far as yeah. it seems like you keep your people. In the hair industry, there's definitely a lot of turnover. And I think just in general with the new workforce, it's a lot more common to leave wherever you're at and kind of jump around. And hairdressing can be that profession that, because to become a hairdresser, it takes about a year and a couple months. It can be a profession that someone just tries out. They're like, well, it's a year of schooling. If I don't like it, I don't have to do it. So there's a lot of that. You get a mixed bag of people coming into the hair industry. With that, there's enough turnover. Luckily for us, the kind of family dynamic that we were founded on, we get a lot lower turnover. My general manager, for instance, she's not a hairdresser, but she's been with us almost 11 years. She helped us open our New York location, and she started as a receptionist right out of high school. She was one of our receptionists. One of our hairdressers referred her. She was like, oh, my friend's looking for a job. That separates us as we try to build from within and promote from within and basically take somebody that has a good work ethic, who's driven and who has a commitment to the company and teach them the skills that they maybe don't have that would require for them to step up to the next tier of management, be it a floor manager, salon manager, whatever that may be. Yeah. And I think we could touch on this more at the end as far as what we could learn more about you and what your kind of, if you will, like superpower or what you're really good at. Because your ability to hold on to these people, I thought it was interesting because you come from more of an art side, I guess, if you will, than most of our guests might be more of a the right brain versus left brain. For sure. I barely graduated high school and went to beauty school. That's the extent of my education. Definitely, this was all founded on a passion and I've had to learn to be the best boss I could be along the way. But always having the hairdresser heart and keeping their needs, their drives, their motivation really close to me because I'm aligned with that and I share that. And what do you think you're super good at as an owner? If we look back, sometimes we can figure out, hey, I'm pretty good at this, but I'm not so great in this. Is there something that maybe we could learn from you now as far as being a good owner and being able to run these two businesses across the country? I have a long list of what I'm not good at. What I'm best at that serves me well as an owner is I am not afraid to ask for help. And this has been from early on. Things do not typically come easy to me. I work really hard. I have a great work ethic, but it's hard for me to pick up new things sometimes and learn more complicated things that maybe would come easier to others. So I, at an early age, asked for help and I'm really good at following directions. Whenever difficult situations have arise throughout the years of owning a salon, I will seek out the smartest person I know or that I know someone knows in that area of whatever I'm struggling with and just ask. Also not super prideful. I'm not embarrassed to be like, hey, I don't know about this and you can tell me no. I always put that out there too. Like if you don't want to help me, it's totally fine. But I'm just wondering if you can kind of bring me up to speed in this area. And if you were me, what would you do? That's what can make you a good boss is not being afraid to ask the question. Or if you're in sales and trying to ask for the sale, there's nothing to be afraid of. If you don't ask for the help, no one's ever going to give it to you. And normally if someone asks for help, people want to help somebody, especially if it's like a genuine thing. I think your ability to do that is really great. I think you hit on something so important. People really underestimate. I have found most people want to help. There's this innate desire to see others succeed, especially when you're asking someone that's in business and has been there before. Something I do often, people in beauty school will hit me up. Sorry to bug you. Can I ask your advice? It is not a bother. I learned so much from the questions they asked me too of what's relevant, what's important to them. Even when you're asking for help, a lot of times the person you're talking to is getting something out of it too. And it feels good. It feels good to be like, oh, so glad all these things I've overcome can finally help somebody else out. And are you the sole owner? Are you taking on any capital to grow it to this size? And then we can, from there, after we talk about this, maybe jump back to going to high school and when you graduated and how you got here. I am the sole owner. I have no investors, no partners. It wasn't until New York that I actually took a loan out. And I guess the only partner per se would be my husband who has supported all these endeavors and let me take a loan against our house to do this. I think that's important not to underestimate. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because I didn't know about that. The ability of your spouse to be on board to do that, that's a huge deal. Oh, and so often I don't mention him because he's absolutely my silent partner. When we'll get into New York and I'll touch on that more, just how that came about and that it really was him being like, all right, 
we're in this. We'd be crazy not to do this. We'll be crazy and do this. Why don't we go ahead and you said you didn't go to college. You went to beauty school. I don't know if it's best to talk about when you started cutting hair and how you got into where you are today. So why don't we reel it back to whenever you graduated high school? Should I tell you how I started hair in high school? Yeah, even if it was in high school, go ahead. When I was in high school, I was like a freshman, I think. I'd wear my hair up in super crazy updos. I had really long hair. And a senior took notice and was like, hey, can you do my hair like that for a homecoming court? I'm nominated for queen. I was like, all right, well, I work at a bikini shop. So you can come on my break and I'll do it in the dressing room. So I threw her hair up in an updo. She ended up winning for anybody that cares. She does. Yeah, because of her winning updo. But all of her friends were like, oh my gosh, who did your hair? This was late 90s or mid 90s where those like obnoxious updos with flowers and just a bunch of crap thrown in it was really popular. Her friends asked me to do their hair and I end up kind of overnight having this updo business and I really enjoyed it. And this was the first time that I was actually naturally good at something. I'd never played a sport. I'd been terrible at school, even though I tried my hardest. And finally, I found this thing. I started taking appointments. With every dance, I had more girls asking for me to do their hair. I ended up teaming up with my, to this day, is my best friend, Noelle, who did makeup, kind of the same thing, did makeup for all these girls. We team up, we do hair and makeup. We end up subleasing a place out of a back of a dress shop and our book, Solid, and getting more business from other schools and making some real money. Through all this, I love doing the hair, decided I'm going to go to beauty school. But even more so, I loved the hustle. I loved getting the clients and finding out the dates of the other high school's dances and passing flyers out at their dances and the whole acquisition of the customer and the relationship and getting them booked in for their next appointment and so on and so forth. So that part is what really jumped out to me through this whole process. And it was then I decided, not only am I going to go to hair school, I'm going to own a salon as soon as I can. And that was my goal. You even said that you opened up a little shop in the back of something while you're in high school. Did you end up dropping out of high school to start doing this? Because it's pretty cool that you're able to figure out your quote unquote passion at 15, 16 and you're still doing it today. Yeah. Thank God I have a very sensible mother. And there is the beauty schools that you can go to in lieu of high school. My mom just wouldn't let me. She's like, you know what? You need to learn that you have to finish things even if you don't like them. Just because something's new and shiny, you don't just jump to that. So no, I could have even graduated. I took extra classes to be like, look, I can graduate a half a year early. And she didn't care. She was like, no, you have to finish and finish proper. Moreover, I wanted you to be older and more mature so that when you went into beauty school that you were like prepared for beauty school too. I think that was important to be successful. It's not necessary to always skip the steps. You don't have to drop out of high school. It doesn't have to be so radical. It's really important to do things you don't like and see them through. When I finally graduated high school by the skin of my teeth, I was that much more excited to go to beauty school. And I think it was a deeper commitment to show up on time to beauty school and none of it went in vain. And so were you making decent money even from high school when you were cutting these girls' hair? And to clarify, I was not cutting their hair. I was doing updos. Sorry, updos, my bad. Yes, very different because I was absolutely incapable of cutting hair and terrified of that in beauty school. Yeah, I was making pretty decent money. I mean, I still waitress. I've always had three jobs. I made decent money. Once I went to beauty school, it was a full eight to five every single day. I worked after beauty school and I worked in a salon assisting a couple days a week after beauty school and on the weekends. I was full force right out of the gate, graduated beauty school, rented a chair, which is probably the harder, riskier way to hit the floor. I definitely, if anybody can, they should assist a full year out of beauty school because beauty school doesn't prepare you for actual clients and modern techniques that are required in salon life. I rented a station, still waitress. I would work all day and then rush and serve crab legs at night. Probably for a year, I also started working for a product company on the weekends to get a little more experience and kind of that assisting that I wasn't getting by just doing hair right out of the gate. Working seven days a week for probably the first seven to 10 years of my hairdressing life. Hiring isn't as easy as putting an ad in the paper or posting on a job board. With more qualified candidates than ever, you need something that helps you find the right people for your business. And LinkedIn Jobs does just that. With more than 500 million active members, people come to LinkedIn every day to make connections, grow their careers, and discover new job opportunities. And 90% of LinkedIn users are open to new opportunities. 
but not actively scanning job boards. This means LinkedIn Jobs gives you access to an entirely demographic than anywhere else. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Things like collaboration, work ethic, and adaptability are all taken into consideration. So LinkedIn Jobs can help you find someone that's not only qualified, but also matches with your company's culture. LinkedIn Jobs gets your job in front of the most relevant, qualified candidates, so you can focus on making a hire you're excited about. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash millionaire and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire. Terms and conditions apply. You're doing that, I guess it's early 2000 when you're kind of coming out of beauty school, right? And then yeah. you said you're renting chair, doing a couple jobs. You were at that salon for seven years and then you decided to start your own one? Okay, we'll go into that. I'm in Orange County, renting a station working for a product company, doing a ton of stuff. I end up getting the opportunity to do hair for the Pussycat Dolls in Los Angeles. They were a burlesque troupe at the time. And I jumped on it. They ended up really taking off. And it was bringing me to LA, which was a terrible commute. Just gridlock traffic. I end up relocating to Los Angeles and renting a station in a salon in Los Angeles part-time because I have a full clientele in Orange County, kind of splitting my time between the two. Three months into renting a station in LA, the salon goes under, the owner is incarcerated, and I'm kind of the last person left working there. And the landlord issues a 30-day pay or quit. I don't know what to do. I call my mentors, who I've met through the product company I work at. They suggest that I take the salon over. So I begin that process, of which involved me going down to the jail, attempting to get the paperwork signed over for me to take over the salon. It was a terrifying process and all things brand new. I'm 24 years old and just moved to LA. And I have a little bit of clientele, but not in no way, shape or form am I technically prepared to hit the ground running with a full clientele in a salon that I own. But I do it anyways. I had saved up money for a house since I was 18. All this while, while I was working three jobs, I always lived off of the income of one. The other two incomes, I just threw away in savings. And that was from the encouragement of my mentors. I will say that, again, having mentors, my main mentor was a VP of a product company. So she wasn't even a hairdresser, but I just liked how she did business. And she cared about me enough to be honest with me. And to me, that it's really important that finding a mentor doesn't have to be this bizarre process. It can be whoever you just really respect, who has the character that you would like to embody, and who's brave enough to give it to you straight. And for me, that has been, again, my defining moments in my life when I don't know what to do that I lean on and get really hard, direct answers of like, do this, be braver than you think you could be. And that was one of those moments. They're like, go for it. What do you have to lose? I end up getting the lease signed over despite being able to contact him. The clerk's office at the jail was able to sign the paperwork saying that I had attempted. And it was really hard. It was really scary. I negotiated with the landlord, took it over. Turns out it wasn't that great of a lease agreement. I would learn years later, hence why that landlord was so willing to sign it over. But I ended up having all the equipment in there. I brought all the bills up to speed. Overall, it cost me about $30,000 to bring the salon upright, which is technically a deal for opening a salon. Yeah. So was that all your savings? Is that how much you had saved up or did you have a little bit more left? No. Okay. Done. And then also you're saying he was incarcerated. Can you tell us why he was incarcerated? And then also you're in Los Angeles at the time. Yeah. I guess you just moved up there. So you felt you almost had to take over this salon because were you still working in Orange County too, going back and forth? You don't think about going back to Orange County? Yes. That's a big part of this story. I was like, all right, I can take this over. I don't have hardly any clientele in LA. I'll still do the part-time in Orange County because I have a full book of clientele. I know how much I make in two days there and that'll pay my bills. And upon opening, the owner in Orange County fired me and left me a message on my voicemail. I had it saved for many years. I don't anymore. That basically was like, I hope you fail. It was crazy. It was that moment that my mentor Donna had, had warned me of. She's like, get this salon open, do it, but I'm going to give you a weird piece of advice. Not everyone's going to be happy for you. And it was really odd. I was like, what do you mean? This is so exciting. I'm 24. I'm opening my own salon. Everyone should be delighted. And that wasn't the case. People were really scared for me. People were really angry. I lost 
a lot of those so-called friends that I thought I had in that salon in Orange County, not all of them, there's still a couple that I still talk with, but that door got slammed shut. I was devastated. I thought, 24 years old, to lose my 10 girlfriends who I thought were going to be my friends for life was devastating. Now looking back, it was the best thing that could have ever happened. Had I kept my foot in two ponds, my salon would have failed. I would have never jumped fully in. And at that time, I wasn't brave enough to do it. So the universe helped me out and got me fired. That's got to be hard because even your thought process, how far away was Orange County in Los Angeles? 60 miles. So your thought process is like, oh, I'm moving up. You want to be up there with that clientele and start to grow your business. And then yeah. you're like, I can open up this salon, but still work at the other one because yep. they're not competitors because it's so far away. But then did your old boss think that? Is that why she fired you or is it something else? I think she was emotionally driven. And that was also a takeaway for me. I think with any of those hard moments in your career, you got to really examine it and be like, okay, what can I extract from this? What can I learn from? And that was that thing that it's like, man, don't take things personal as a boss because you're the one that signed up for this job. No one's making you do it. And I think she took it personally. It seems like it got to be hard too. Like you were saying, you said it's the best thing now, but when you're open your own business, at least usually you have your friends on the side that you can still hang out with to get away from mentally, it would think like, but then you said you lost all your friends at the same time that you're taking this over. Not all my friends. Okay. Those ones at that salon. Again, who I'd mentioned earlier, Noelle, my best friend, that same day showed up and is answering phones. She's like, in between her jobs, my non-paid receptionist. Then my other friend, Carla, came up with a name for me and a logo. My other friend, Allison, came in and showed me how to use QuickBooks, set me up like I was running a multi-million dollar company because she's like, you better act like you are if you want to be. Those are real friends. Those are the friends that when you're like down in the dumps, they're not just, how can I help you? Or, you know, when you get this, let me know if you need help. You're like, I can't even form a sentence. I'm so terrified. And these friends just literally showed up and did things for me that I didn't even know how to ask for. What did your boss at this new salon that you were taking over, how long did this transition for you to buy or take over this business? I don't know if it's necessarily buying the business. And why did he get incarcerated? Was it something business-wise? No. So he had relapsed on drugs and had already was on probation and had some priors. He had been in trouble with the law before. It just kind of caught up with him. And right before he ended up going to jail, he was living in the salon. That's why all the stylists left. It got weird. Yeah, it sounds like it. If a guy's living in there and dealing with all that. Yeah, it's sad. There's a part of me too that it's cutthroat in a sense what I did. But there's a sadness too. Like he was going through his own struggles and the reality is me taking it over, he ended up not being responsible for that last lease that the landlord would have gone after him for. So even though when he got out of jail, he was furious and I had saved all of his documents. I did the best I could with what I had. But at the end of the day, it was a smart opportunity that everything would have been seized and sold and he would have been responsible for a lease. The salon would have gone under. A couple stylists ended up coming back. In a sense, naming the salon a heroine had a double entendre where I was a female hero resurrecting a failed salon and heroin was something that brought it down. Wow. We haven't talked to any entrepreneur who's acquired a business this way. Oh, you mean most entrepreneurs don't go down to men's central prison to get a lease signed over? I haven't talked to any yet. Maybe you know oh. a few. Yeah. Yeah. In itself, I mean, you're going from, I guess you were always kind of cut your own hair, having to get your own clients. So you already had that mindset, at least. It was yeah. not like you came out of nowhere realizing you have to get clients and everything. But how long was the transition for you to do all that and take over the lease and get everything up to payment? Because again, he can be pissed off, but it was his fault and he'd be in actually worse shape if you didn't take over the business. Totally. It was my first lesson in business that you have to make smart moves. You do the best you can to take care of people. But at the end of the day, that's not your job. You're not their mother. You're not their savior. And you're going to have a terrible business if you think that's part of your business. So that was my first lesson, just making really bizarre takeover hard thing and bringing things up to speed, dealing with the repercussions of him coming out, screaming at me and what steps I had to take for that. Altogether, it took me about three years for us to break even. So in that time, in three years, when I wasn't at the salon, I was doing freelance gigs, I was doing photo shoots. I was working for a product company, doing platform work around 
the world. I would work a full day, take a red-eye flight out, straight from work, drive to the airport, take a red-eye flight out, change in the bathroom, walk straight onto stage and teach hair because I knew if I make this money, then I can pay for our business taxes. It was about a like $10,000 overhead a month just to break even in the salon. And until we had the stylists that were performing, building their clientele, till my clientele got built up, there's a lot of things that had to be in place and working right to make that money and to turn a profit. I guess you're excited. You're in your early 23 when you start taking over the business, get everything ready. And then you're saying it takes three years basically before even breaking even. I mean, yep. even in those three years, did you ever want to give up? Because the ability to withstand that and work for that long and that hard, it would seem like, and not make any money. Did you ever have any second thoughts? All the time. My daily commute to work was this whole conversation in my head of like, what were you thinking? This is the worst idea ever. And it's natural, I think, too. You kind of got to come to peace with those thoughts. Have them, but not for too long and put them somewhere. Something that helped me a lot when I had to do that big overhead was keeping my personal expenses at a bare minimum. I lived in a warehouse space in downtown, rented every room and my couch out so I could have the cheapest rent possible, drove a reliable car that was super cheap. So things like that, that keeping my expenses in control helped me get ahead of the money situation a lot faster. Do you finally start breaking even? Once you start doing that, is that you feel like you're turning a corner? You're not having to do pick up these extra jobs or just tell us you're about 27 at this point. Yeah. The second we start breaking even, I get casted on a reality show and I go away for six weeks. That was the first time I left the salon. That was a super brave move. And I think timing wise, it was perfect. I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing that or financially been able to do that had we not been breaking even and bringing in a bit of a profit. It allowed me to do that and start to grow the business as a brand, as opposed to just surviving. When you're breaking even, you're just surviving. You don't have extra money to do marketing or try unique things that could really drive business. Our next step was like, now we know how to kind of have this business. How do we now grow it and turn into a brand and set ourselves up for success for the next 20 years? What does that look like? A big company, five, 10, 20 years from now. That same time, we ended up getting approached by Urban Outfitters, who had a space across the street and was like, hey, you should move across the street. That was the first time I took a line of credit out. And it was funny. It was my first experience of no, actually, it wasn't when I first opened, it was my very first experience of nobody wanting to lend money to a salon owner. So then 26, we're moving across the street, able to almost double the stations when I need to get new salon furniture. I need to do a lot of stuff just to get the salon up and going across the street in the new space. I go to get a loan from my bank. No go. I end up calling a friend of mine who, oddly enough, they have a really good relationship with this Chinese bank because they're Chinese. And I get a line of credit via meeting the bank manager at their Christmas party. It was so weird. I'm like, is this really how business works? And sometimes I guess it does. It's definitely not what they show you on the Chase banking commercials where you're just like, oh, opening a dog grooming place. Just come on in and we'll set you up. I wish it was easier to get funding for growth and opening businesses. But I will say securing funding has probably been one of the harder obstacles. I have great credit. I own a house. I have upward trajectory of growth in my business, clean books. I pay my taxes. I'm the person that's supposed to get a loan. And still, it's been a process anytime I've had to try to secure funding. So you were moving across the street. Did Urban Outfitters, did they just have an open spot? Was there a reason that they wanted you to come over? And then did you think you had enough money to build out your space? Because no. you already no. knew you didn't have enough money? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Urban Outfitters was trying a new concept where they were going to do kind of these cool mini malls. It secured this outdoor space across the street from my current location. And us being already on that street for a couple of years, an edgy high-end salon, our two brands kind of meshed well together. So they helped us with a bit of the build out and also came down on rent to have us in that space to meet the rent that we are paying across the street. It was a really good opportunity. It was a better space, a better landlord altogether. It was one of those things I was like, man, I know this is going to lead to other stuff. I just got to do it. That was kind of the thing. I was like, all right, no one's going to lend to me. I guess I'll put on a credit card. We'll just do the best we can. And I also just am savvy. 
I've had a friend build out the stations for me. My aunt sells metal. I had her get the metal for the station, that wholesale. Just kind of leaned into any contact I could think of to pull my resources together to save money and make it happen. This goes back to the thing where you're saying you don't mind asking for help. Some of us might have relatives and they're scared to ask for that. But especially if it's your relative, if you have a good relationship, which hopefully most of us do, then I think they're going to take the opportunity to try to help you if you ask for it. My aunt was so excited because she sells metal. She's like, when do I ever get to hook a family up? Nobody normally needs sheets of metal. And then a friend of mine, he's an airplane mechanic. And he had built us something like a wine rack out of a propeller. And I was like, hey, this is really cool. Can you build other things? And he really loves building stuff. So for him, he was, oh my God, this is so cool. I'm excited to build you these giant tables. So they visit the salon and they know that, wow, we're part of this place. They're a really important part of our salon. You got the loan from the bank. How much did you end up getting? And was that enough to secure you and make a successful business move across the street? It was, we got a $50,000 line of credit. So it wasn't a loan, it was a line of credit. We just made it work. So did things start taking off from there? Yeah. You're just breaking even up to that point, it sounded like, I don't know, 27, 28, when you moved across the street. Let's see. We had a bigger space, better configuration. So we ended up almost doubling our staff. From what to what? We went from 10 people to 15. For me at that time, that was a big jump. I had no clue the difference from 10 people to 15 people meant in terms of management, schedule management, coaching, et cetera. So that was a big aha moment when you increase your staff. The time that it's going to take employees require additional management at certain thresholds that you hit, you're going to need to get more managers. Yeah, because it doesn't sound that much from afar. But again, you're saying it was even if it was just five people that really made a big difference as far as you being a maybe with 10 people, you're able to communicate with all of them. But maybe with the extra five people, it made it too difficult to spend your time managing and teaching, etc. Well, and something else, we opened seven days a week to accommodate for those 15 people schedules so that we had kind of a evenly dispersed schedule. We have 15 stations and our goal was to have 22 stylists so that we have some split stations, split days, full load for seven days. And when you're open seven days a week, that means you're now a boss that is on call seven days a week. So that was a big aha too. And I became increasingly aware. Now, mind you too, I'm behind the chair five days a week. And when I'm not doing that, I'm doing celebrity clients, still teaching, flying different places. The bigger I got, I began to make different decisions. I'm like, okay, I need an office day. So I had to cut back behind the chair. I just slowly cut back more and more as I grew. I had to shift the kind of boss that I was becoming as well. And my work schedule changed drastically each year, each growth opportunity. Like today, I work behind the chair two days a week, don't do any freelance. I don't educate for any companies. And I'm focused primarily on my two locations and my online salon. When you moved across, were you profitable right away? I think you also mentioned, I don't know if this is a good point in time to say it, that you had a deposit with your old landlord because you didn't enjoy the old landlord either. Apparently he wasn't fun to deal with. Oh yeah. Things you have to look out for in your lease is like, I didn't know that I had to make sure that they were responsible for maintaining the air conditioning unit. Yeah, it wasn't in my lease. So that was according to him, my responsibility. And it was a faulty unit that would have cost me $30,000 to replace, which that's ridiculous. It's not something I can take with me when we leave. It's not one of my assets. Right. Yeah, exactly. He refused to fix our leaking roof. He claimed it doesn't rain that much in LA. So it's actually not that big of a problem. He was horrible. He was like a cartoon character version of a landlord. So when we moved across the street, I did all the things to leave it in working order. I had fixed that place up. It looked amazing, better than when I acquired it. He produced like, what would it be? A receipt saying that I had destroyed the place so that I wasn't entitled to my deposit, which at that time, because when we renewed our lease, I had to up it. It was a deposit that was about $13,000. I just looked up. I started with the contractor license on the receipt and it was expired contractor that had done the work. I talked to my lawyer. He's like, just go to small claims. You can get 10,000 of it. That would be the most cost-effective way of going about this. I filed a small claims. We had to subpoena the guy that produced this receipt. Lewis, who's worked for me in LA, now runs my New York location. I had him go to the guy's house because it couldn't be me that subpoenaed him. 
He knocked on the guy's door. The guy wouldn't answer. So then Lewis went and got a pizza and went back, knocked on the door and was like, oh, did, I can't remember the guy's name. You ordered a pizza? And then the guy opened the door and he's like, here, you've been served. We had to like trick a guy into getting served, basically. The whole thing was super shady. So it turned out they had this kind of illegal thing going that my landlord would pay this guy to write false receipts in hopes that nobody would challenge it. And long story long, we go to court. The guy's like, I do not want to go to court. I'll write whatever you want because he would have been in so much trouble with this. He loses his license, right? He was the contractor saying that they had it fixed everything after you left or something. Exactly. Okay, yeah. So he signed a thing saying that this absolutely was fake. And I went to court, stood up against my landlord and won and got my deposit back. It was one of those moments where it was out of my wheelhouse. It was really scary and it looked legit that I wasn't entitled to this. So it was that moment where I was like, you know what? I'm going to slow down, take the time to educate myself on this a bit, ask my lawyer. I just went down to the courthouse. How do I file a small claims? What am I entitled to? I asked. They were actually shockingly really helpful. Helped me fill out all the paperwork on the spot. With the subpoena thing, we got creative. Rather than just taking things for face value, get creative and sometimes have fun with it. I mean, I know that's a really weird piece of advice when you're serving someone, but we turned a would-be impossible situation into a really funny story and something empowering for us in the long run. I think that's important in business. Like we're here to learn your story and everything along the way, but at the end of the day, you only live once, right? Yeah. Are you going to go ahead and like you have stick up your butt about business all the time? You need to have fun every once in a while, even within the business. Just thinking outside the box and again, you asking for help at that point helped you get back your $13,000 deposit. So now you closed up place. It seems like things went well when you moved across the street yeah. for a couple of years. And then is that the point in time you decided, hey, things are going well enough. Let me go ahead and just move to New York as well. So that was, let's see, we were there five years doing great with Urban Outfitters. We were really thriving in that space. They approached me and they were like, hey, we have a similar concept to the plaza we have here. We're going to do it in New York and we want you to put a bid in for the project. We think you guys could be a good fit. At that point, I was six months pregnant with my first kid. Up until then, I'd pretty much done everything on my own. I'd opened my salon by myself, made all the decisions by myself, but I'm married and pregnant by now. And I would have to definitely get a loan for the first time. To get a loan, I'd have to go against our house that my husband and I own. So this is the first time I had to really sit down with my husband. I'm like, can we do this? Are you okay with this? Thankfully, we really come together in the economics of our work and our relationship. We can speak very openly about money and he's really good with money and finances and he loves a good spreadsheet. So I kind of put it all down first because he would have a million questions. He's like a part-time interrogator, basically. And I was like, here's what I think it'll take. Here's what I think it'll cost. Here's what I think I'll need to do. I said, I think I'll need to go there for three months move there with the baby to get it up and going. I think it'll take a year. Their plaza is planning to be open in a year. I think it'll take us that long to get that going. I think I'll need to take a quarter of a million dollar loan out. It'll need to go against our house. So what do you think? Can we do this? And do you want your firstborn and wife to be gone with your six-month-old baby? I would think that you're running away. Yeah, right. <laughs> you want to take 250K out again and go to New York with the baby I know, for a month. right? It seems like a good opportunity because you realized this concept had kind of worked where you were in LA, obviously. Because there's only so many opportunities you would think to be with Urban Outfitters, right? Yeah. And let's just to paint the picture, if anybody's listening has been to New York, this is ground level, 35th Street. We have windows. And we're on the ground level. Those are two things that you have to be a billionaire in New York to have that. This is a location I could have never secured on my own. I mean, the rent is three times what I have in LA, but the income opportunity is also that. It's terrifying. I almost proposed it to him thinking he's going to say no. And To your husband? Yeah, of course. I'm like, all right, well, this is my out. He'll be like, what is wrong with you? Probably be more the logical way of thinking, right? If things have been going well, you can just live a happy life in yeah. LA instead of across the country. And please bear in mind, I'm from California. I don't have any clients in New York. I don't know any hairdressers in New York. We're not from New York. So it doesn't seem that logical, even with the opportunity. <laughs> no, I think even too, when they proposed it to me, Urban expected me to say no. So I asked him and he was like, I definitely want to say no but I will regret not saying yes and having you try this. And I believe in you and I think you and your team can do this, but this is crazy. So he said, yes. 
And I said, yes. Thank God my team said yes. Then I go back to my team. I'm like, hey guys, can we do this? Can we open in New York? And how? And Elvira, who's my general manager now, she was like, you know what? I can do this. I've never been to New York, but I'm going to open this salon and I'm going to run it. And she was our head receptionist at the time. And she's got what it takes to pretty much do anything. And then Lewis, one of our head stylists, who I've worked with my entire career, he was like, you know what? And he's very emo. Love him to death. But he's like, ugh, I've always needed an excuse to be forced to move to New York. I guess I'll run it. It was kind of that, all right, this is lining up and we're going to do this. And they did. Elvira's first trip to New York was moving there. Her and I landed with a six-month-old and 20 duffel bags. We did it. We didn't look back. Lewis is still there. The salon is thriving. The hardest stuff there was management turnover, getting the right fit. By coastally, it is really hard. And I will say Lewis has been our anchor in making sure that in tethering that balloon down, that this creative, energetic space doesn't just float away. With all the, some turnover that we've had, we still have five people that have been there since we opened five years ago, which is a testimony. We're not from New York. We didn't know any hairdressers from New York. But we got some really great people that got what we were trying to accomplish and were like, hey, we see you, heroin. They knew about us in L.A. They knew what we were about. And they were the New York version of our heroin L.A. And we've created the same creative, welcoming space that we have in L.A. And ironically enough, we have the same metrics. We have 40% of our clientele is men, super diverse clientele. We have created successfully the same space that we have in L.A., but for New York. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, Nine out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. When you're building this thing out, did it ever go over budget? Because I know that happens a lot. It seems like whenever you're building stuff out and then were you profitable right away on this location as well? Or did you have to take some of your money from the other location? Because that's what I hear sometimes when you have different locations. Again, this is a new location. So I can understand if you're taking profit from the other one to put it in this one. But sometimes one's draining the other and it's like, hey, maybe I shouldn't have opened that second location. Oh, there's so many moments of that. We did not go over budget. We didn't end up actually even spending our entire loan. For me, I always look at like, what's my most expensive money? In hindsight, I was a little too fixated on that. I should have utilized my entire loan and not stressed out my LA location as much as I have. That's a big thing I would have changed. I was almost too fiscally responsible, I thought okay, we won't spend our money. And then the second there was a management turnover and sales declined, we had to dip into LA. And that sucked. The small business loan was no longer there to spend. So we took as much as we needed. And then we're like, okay, that's all we need. Versus you're saying, let's say you had spent 230 and then you just get an approval for 250. Yep. You just gave back the rest instead yep. of taking the extra 20 and putting it in your bank just in case. Exactly. Okay. And you're saying, what's your most expensive money? What do you mean by that? Because at the time I was like, well, if we borrow it from LA, we're not charging interest. Okay. Yeah, I got you. But what we're doing is creating kind of a money crisis for my entire company as a whole. Right. You have no rainy day fund or flexibility in case something like this had happened, which it did. I think that's a big business learning curve to understand those money metrics. And you got to spend money to make money because as somebody that tries to be fiscally responsible, it's hard to get my head around that I have to pay interest and that sometimes paying down the loan right away is not going to be the smartest money move if it completely depletes our savings. Yeah, I think I would probably end up making that exact same problem because you don't want to take any more debt, at least in my mind, and it seems like you were obviously the same. 
mindset is like, I don't want to take any more debt. I want to give what I can, but it's still worth it. Even if you're paying interest on the extra 10, 15, 20 K and just put in your bank account because you have that flexibility again. Yeah. Did everything start going okay in New York after the management stuff? Well, I guess you're hiring hairdressers from there to get clients in there. Cause again, this is like kind of when you moved to LA originally, Yeah. you had to find your own clients, but this time it's in New York. So I don't know if you had hairdressers who already had their own clients that can make the business run pretty quick. Same thing. It was like, Carbon copy. Within three years, we were profitable somewhat. In New York, though, we ended up having a dip because we had a big management turnover and the coaching just wasn't there for such a new salon. So we're now on a better upward trajectory this year, which is good. What year was it when you opened the one in New York, actually? See, that was, it'll be five years in June. Okay. So what you're saying is- Last year. Yeah, last year or two is when you started becoming profitable with it. Yep. And last year we had a big hiccup with just some poor management decisions we had. Someone in our company kind of head wasn't in the game. We restructured and through that ended up making some really great changes that have tightened our belts a bit and came up with better systems that worked better and were just a little bit more efficient, found holes where we could save money. So I will say that with business, it's not always an upward trajectory. And when it has those down points, it's a really good time to put everything on a whiteboard, open it all up, see where the holes are, come up with new innovative ways, what's necessary. That's the other thing too. We've been doing this now for, it'll be 13 years. And okay, there's some things that we don't need to do or we need to change that worked 13 years ago that maybe aren't relevant for the business we have today. Well, the one employee, because it sounds like you took your pride in not having much turnover, but there was a little bit of turnover and you said there's an issue with an employee. I mean, do you want to dive into that? And is there anything we can learn from that in particular, like more details about that? Yeah, it was someone that had been with me for four years and she wanted to work from home. And But she was doing the books and stuff. She wasn't like a hairdresser yeah. or anything. Okay, I got you. She was kind of overseeing both locations. In that decision, I was like, okay, I really value her part in my company and I was willing to try it. And it rapidly went downhill. Her ability to physically see the going ons of the salon, both in New York and LA, affected her decision making. She was so detached that communication was slowed down. We were kind of bogged down with communicating with her. Now I know anybody that works for my company, even if it's behind the scenes, they still need to be in the salon. If it's one day a week, a couple hours, a couple days a week, whatever, they need to connect with my hairdressers so that they can really see the going ons with the salon and we need to meet in person. That is our business. We do hair on people. So I think getting too far from your core business values and like what you're actually selling and having that relate to how you operate can negatively impact the business. And for me, that was a remote employee does not work for my business model. Yeah. Unless they are coming in, like you said, maybe once a week, twice a week, whatever, because yeah, even though they're not the ones cutting the hair, you're a people person business. It's it's not like you're making software online and never have to interact with the people. Exactly. And in theory, it sounded like it could work. But it just took that coaching, that personal approach, that all the things that make us special and unique at Heroin and why people stay and how we grow, it took it away. It dimmed our light. Well, what happened afterwards as far as you keeping people on or what you prided yourself in as far as keeping these people on board instead of turning over as much? Like I said, you had a little blip on the radar or something like, but I mean, we all do in business or whatever. But tell us what you do in general. Again, you think you just pay them and you're like, oh, yeah, they should be happy they have a job and come to work happy because I give them a job, right? But that's not what all it takes. I think I've seen some like awesome statistics that how much somebody gets paid is three or four on the list of things that keep them out of job. On a company like mine, we're a hair salon. No one's going to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars per se. Some of my top stylists, they do make a good amount of money. Their industry standards have capabilities have a very fair commission scale. That's something that does keep hairdressers with me because I value that. I value a hardworking hairdresser and want to pay them accordingly. With that, my hairdressers give back in the way of educating the younger team. So we do a lot of pay it forward type of things. It's like, I can give you a fair commission scale, give you assistance to help you earn a higher commission, more money, but you're going to help me train those hairdressers. You're going to be part of the process, whether they're my hairdressers, my managers, my assistants, Whoever, making them part of the process will always give them a deeper sense of connection to your company and your visions and goals. 
Also sharing with them what your goals are. Being transparent with, hey, here's where we're at. Here's where I want to go. And here's how I think we can do it. Where do you guys see your strengths lie in this plan? Do you do that like once a year or something? Like I know sometimes people might not have those talks with their employees or depends on how many they have or whatever. How often do you talk to them about stuff like this other than coming in and working? I'll give you kind of my list of unique touch-ins with different staff. At the beginning of the year, we do goal boards with everyone, both locations. And I've done this since I was 19 years old. We've done this every year since we opened. We throw a bunch of magazines out there, construction paper. I kind of give a bit on goals or dream with a deadline. I share my previous goal boards. We have staff get up and share their goal boards from the last year and what goals they did achieve. We pick three goals and how we can achieve that goal or part of that goal within this year. We share them with each other so that we can kind of connect and coach and encourage one another throughout the year. One that's a popular one is like a fitness goal or a weight loss goal. And a lot of staff will be like, hey, that's my goal too. Let's be gym buddies. It's an opportunity to kind of get them to interconnect in the company too. So that's one thing we do. We have quarterly reviews. Now, these aren't like, here's your metrics. Here's what you didn't do. That's not what our quarterly reviews are about. We share their metrics ahead of time with them and ask them to come with questions, concerns, anything they'd like to also discuss about their goals, their position within the company. This is just a time for us to sit down and touch in and be like, all right, what's going on? Here's where you're at. How do you feel about where you're at? If you fell short, what do you think held you back? And a lot of times, if you just go by metrics, it can be really harmful to the employee's outlook on the company. Most times, if someone's doing great and it dips, if I just stuck to the numbers and was like, you got to do better this quarter, and I have almost 50 people, so I can't know what's going on at this point with every single person at all the times. This is a moment for me to ask them like, hey, was there something particular that kind of got you off track? What's going on? Is there anything we can do to help you get on track? Is heroin still the place that you see yourself for the long run? Where are we at? A lot of times if someone's numbers fall, it'll be something like, yeah, my grandma died last month and it really shook me up. And we can touch on that and be like, okay, next time, what's something we can do? Is this something maybe take a personal day or how can we better support you so that you can better deal with life's happenings, but feel supported here and not just you don't have a place that supports you and understands and recognizes that life in fact happens. Being open to those kind of conversations especially with the newer working generation, has created a safer place for them to work. I found in turn a place that they want to work longer. And I think that's really important what you said. Again, as a business person, you might be just looking at the numbers and trying to motivate them to get these things up. But if you don't ask about it, like that almost might have the opposite effect or screw you, like you don't know oh, what yeah. I'm dealing with versus you coming down and just being more open-minded and asking those things, I think is kind of important. At this point in time, you're profitable. Things seem like they're going well in both locations. Are you ready to open a new location in Miami or something? Oh, yeah. Are you ready for my haircut? I, no, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you got opposite sides, so I figured Miami is a Bermuda Triangle for you. I think it's too humid. Yeah, humid. Too much humidity for me. Yeah, for sure. Currently, we're focused on our online location, which is Parlor H. It's an online store for clients to shop in. We are working on making an app that will support hairdressers to retail products to their clients and earn a commission. That's kind of my focus. It's really hard. I am anti-computer savvy, but I do know a lot about products, clients, and stylists. I'm working on tackling that. Of course, like everything I've done, asking for lots of help, leaning into whoever knows anything about all the things I don't know about. And I have a lot of great people that one of the products we use, Boulevard, it's our booking software. I've been able to, for the last couple of years, help Matt and Sean, the founders of it, use us as a test salon. Oh, you should do this, tweak this, to make it a better software for salons. In turn, I now I'm like, hey, I'm building this. Can you guys help me guide me in the right direction for a pitch deck? Or what does this need to look like? And all that kind of stuff. So it's cool when you just building relationships. I think that's been the most fun part about growing my business is these people that I've met through the years of whether it's doing their hair. And Matt from Boulevard, he started as a client of Lewis's. At the end of the day, that's how we're going to win, be stable and grow is our power to have true, authentic, engaging relationship. Computer can't replace that. 
that brings value to our clients and our stylists. So this last thing that you're talking about is just a different way of getting more income for your company or a different stream of revenue, if you will. You're saying you're selling online products now is your kind of your focus? Yeah, it's a hole in the market that I've noticed that a lot of high-end products are mostly sold at salons, but most consumers prefer to buy online. It's a way to be a salon online so that we can give access and support with those products. So it's not just here's products, but like a video from a hairdresser telling you quickly how to use it. We have a quiz that has an algorithm attached to each product that will recommend products for you based on your hair needs, gripes, concerns, etc. as if a hairdresser was prescribing you the products themselves. Just taking the professional salon approach to recommending what products to use, what tools to use, how to style your hair. Our most viewed videos are the ones of how to do men's styling, believe it or not. We have a how to do a samurai bun has 13,000 views. Well, well, I don't have to worry about that problem. Don't have the hair long enough yet. So maybe I'll grow it out to try to figure out how to do that. To get yourself a samurai bun, don't worry. We can support you on it. So what's that website for consumers they can check out too? Yeah. It's parlorh.com. That's P-A-R-L-O-U-R-H.com. All right. And we'll have that. And obviously your story and the links to Parlor H and I guess heroin as far as they want to learn more. But looking back on your story now, you're 37 today. Yep. Did you think you'd be at this point? Yes, I did. I totally did. I don't know if that's weird to say, but... No, we all have vision. So it's good if you can make it happen. Yeah, I did this all on purpose. I love being a boss. I love being an entrepreneur. In the future, it's my goal to create a bigger and bigger company that people love to work at and that I'm proud to own. It's a really good feeling to give employees a stable place to work. Looking back as well, is there any last words of wisdom or tips that you want to leave anyone who's listening or wants to start their own business or maybe they're a few years in or maybe they're at your level now? Do you have any tips for them or anything else you want to leave them with before we get off the call? Yeah, don't be distracted by quick fixes. I feel like so often we see, especially online, that it's like, oh man, everybody's just winning left and right. (laughs) Yeah. They don't share the losses. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I think too, when they do share their losses, when you hear Steve Jobs' story, there's plenty of losses in it, but we don't get fixated on those because those aren't as fun. It's a journey, not a destination. If you learn from all your trips and falls and fails and all that, then you're doing a great job. Just believe in yourself. Surround yourself with people that also believe in you and try to have fun doing it. I mean, that's something I think probably the hardest thing. I try to remind myself, are we still having fun? Because otherwise, you might as well just go work in a cubicle somewhere else and make probably more money. I'll take one last thing too. We even said in the beginning, I think you've mentioned it obviously several times, is asking for help and not being scared to do that. And not even just scared, but it's just like the pride thing. I'm never scared to ask a question. Some people be like, oh, maybe that was a dumb question for me because I didn't understand the acronym. Well, maybe there's other people who don't know. I'm like, I don't care if I don't know it because it's not that big of a deal to me. Just making sure that you're not scared to ask for help when you need it because just put yourself in their shoes. Like everyone who's listening right now has a specialty, something they're really, really good at. Yeah. Like super good at. And if someone came to you asking for advice on maybe skateboarding or something non-business related, if you wanted to teach them how to, you'd be really thrilled. I think most people would, especially if we're talking about the business stuff. I think that people kind of have a different mindset like, oh, I can't ask for the help. But I mean, it's even more important, I would think, in the business mindset. Here's the thing. If this is something you truly want to do, you have to stop it, nothing to do it. And part of that equation is finding people that are smarter than you, asking for help, doing whatever it takes to get there. It's just part of the equation. You can't get around it. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. You have such good questions. Thank you. So I am on Instagram at Janine Jarman, J-A-N-I-N-E. J-A-R-M-A-N, or on Instagram at Heroin Salon, H-A-I-R-R-O-I-N-S-A-L-O-N, heroinsalon.com, parlorh.com. You can email me simply at Janine at heroinsalon.com. And Janine, J-A-N-I-N-E, right? That's me. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Do you know someone who would be an awesome guest to have on the show? If you do, then send us an email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. We're always looking for smart, beautiful entrepreneurs who are willing to share their story. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, 
Give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode. So don't be scared to get creative. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's been made available for free by our podcast sponsors and our Patreon members. So thank you to you both, especially our newest and oldest Patreon members for paying for this episode. So would you be willing to pay for someone else to listen for free? If you are willing to help support us and get some awesome Patreon perks along the way, then go to austinsbigp.com. So again, if you're willing to pay it forward and allow someone else to listen to this episode for free, then go to austinsbigp.com. 